and thanks for tuning in to the Breast Cancer Action Podcast. Breast Cancer Action is not your average breast cancer organization, and this is not your average podcast. We're people-powered and we're fiercely independent, radical and compassionate. We never shy away from the hard truths. We bring you the facts and we tell it like it is about breast cancer and what you can do about it. Hello everyone, my name is Jayla and I am the program manager here at Breast Cancer Action and I'll be your podcast host today. In 1990, a group of women living with breast cancer in the San Francisco Bay Area were seeking information about the causes and treatment of their disease. In this, they encountered unresponsive government agencies and private organizations that provided inadequate superficial information, not the evidence-based data that they were looking for. They got really angry, and what they did with this anger is turned it into action thus forming Breast Cancer Action. With a strong membership base in Northern California for over 18 years, former board member Joanne Lulin, with the support of our organization, has hosted the Billy Gardner Lulin Memorial Benefit, a fundraiser honoring her mother who passed from breast cancer and benefiting the work of our organization. In today's episode, we're bringing you the highlights of the featured conversation from the event about how we can bridge between our community and science in an effort to begin to build trust while holding science accountable. The panelists at this event were Breast Cancer Action's very own Dr. Crystal Redman, also known as KR, Breast Cancer Action board member, Tamitha Thomas-Haas, and founder and CEO of Tiger Lily, Maima Carmo. Dr. Crystal Redman centers her work in health justice, the liberation of folks who reside deep within the margins and in the reproductive justice space. She's a self-published author and a frequent speaker throughout the sexual and reproductive justice movements, as well as the public health sector. They bring over 16 years of experience in leading health promotion and disease prevention initiatives, as well as organizing towards equitable access, care, and treatment within community-based and centered programs. Tamitha has over 16 years of experience as an independent public health consultant. In 2018, Tamitha was diagnosed with stage 3 triple negative inflammatory breast cancer, a rare and aggressive breast cancer that accounts for 1-5% to of breast cancers diagnosed in the United States. Maima is the founder and CEO of the Tiger Lily Foundation and has been living with breast cancer for 16 years. Her organization, Tiger Lily, provides breast health, education, empowerment, wellness, and transformational programs to young women and works to end disparities of age, stage, and color. The powerful dialogue between these three advocates and activists speaks to the intersections of our work, the history of trauma and harm perpetuated by the medical industrial complex against those living within the margins, and how we can build trust. We do so by shifting the responsibility of building trust from the individual, the patient, and the person living with breast cancer back to where it belongs, to the scientific community, centering accountability and transparency. So without further ado, let's dive into this dynamic conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. KR opens the discussion by specifically naming the issue of asking people to trust the science without acknowledging the historical context in which science has been untrustworthy. 
Let's talk about what the issue is at hand. Um, as we said, today's time is really to discuss trust, accountability, and science, um, and really just looking at what that history is and how we can move forward. So, you know, many groups of people, including people living with breast cancer, are asked to trust science. It's like this, this immediate, quick thing, no underlining variables bowls there, just trust science. Uh, despite the fact that the medical industrial complex has a problematic and racist history, just to be clear, um, and is not taking transformative steps to build the trust that is needed. The history of medicine and science is rooted in the experimentation of black and brown bodies and the profiting off of those bodies and communities. So that's what we mean by when, when we speak about the medical industrial complex and where the profit lies and things of that nature. And with a history such as that, with the roots such as that, to just kind of disclaim, hey, trust us, there's a little bit more work, <laughs> a lot of bit more work that needs to go into that, right? And um, breast cancer, as we know, is a complex group of diseases that occur in a complex world. When a person is first diagnosed with breast cancer, often they are faced with an overwhelming responsibility to learn about their specific type that they face um, with also overcoming responsibility to learn um, the stage that they're in with the, a breast cancer and treatment options, weigh the potential hazards and potential benefits, and the most um, informed decision, how they can move forward with their care. And then finally, the medical industrial complex is uh, dominated by big pharmaceutical companies, as we know, federal agencies and research institutions that present the complex uh, science of breast cancer with medical jargon, a lack of patient representation or a lack of patient-centeredness in a lot of their jargon. Yet people living with breast cancer, their loved ones and take, uh, caretakers are asked to just, as I said, trust their science. So finally, why should people, including communities of color and people living with breast cancer, trust an institution um, from which they have been excluded from and which they are not been represented, right? Not currently, not historically. And how do we trust the science of breast cancer treatment when science is general and in particular hasn't been trustworthy? So that's why we're here today to discuss some of those gaps. Uh, we've gone from acknowledging the lack of representation um, of communities of color, um, of uh, different uh, genders, of different just walks of life, folks that exist deep within those margins, or the voices of those living with breast cancers to asking for participation and trust in science with no steps in between. So uh, we're going to be here to talk about the steps in between, right? And the steps afterwards and all those different things. Powerful words from our executive director. So what are these steps in between? In the next part of this conversation, Maima and KR go on to provide a tangible example of how science and people with breast cancer can collaboratively disrupt power dynamics at the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, the largest breast cancer symposium in the world, which is mostly dominated by researchers, scientists, and practitioners. Breast Cancer Action has attended this conference for over a decade, bringing our unique patient-centered perspective on the latest findings. Maima from Tiger Lily was also there as well. So Maima and KR go on to speak on the culture of this conference and how contrary to popular belief, the scientific community is not yet fully inclusive of or reflective of patients' needs and real world experiences. Yeah, you know, I really appreciate your introduction. We hear about Tuskegee, Henrietta Lacks, the cells that were 
stolen and monetized. People are experimented on. They're giving radiation in men and different syphilis experiment, experiment trial, whatever they called it. There are things that have happened that have been horribly wrong with our healthcare system and scientific communities, but they're still happening, right? You know, um, so when we would talk about history, what is history? And there's 100 years ago, there's 50 years ago, and there's two years ago, and there's today. So the issue isn't just what happened in the past, is that it's still happening. You know, um, one of the reasons, I, you know, with this spread on this conversation was, you know, I, I went to San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. I've gone many years, never invited as an advocate, just gone because I wanted to learn science. And when I would ask a question, I would be asked, are you a doctor or, and, you know, what's your, what, what, what's your affiliation? And I would get dismissed. And I would look around and they'd be talking about the importance of the lack of black women, you know, involved in clinical trials or lack of diversification in terms of treatment options. And we, people dying more of triple negative breast cancer, which is what I have, and which is found more often in black women. But yet I'm looking around, there's just doctors in a room and no brown or black patients. This happened to me year after year. So I said, well, why aren't there more patients of color here? And people would say, well, this is a conference for scientists. I'm sorry, Mr. Scientist, Mrs. Scientist, if you're working for me, why am I not in the freaking room? Mm-hmm. And so they're like, well, there's advocacy events happening, but this is, this is the whole, the ballroom, this whole thing is for scientists. So I said, okay, I'm going to just mess this, mess this, jack this all up. So I ended up bringing black and brown women to the conference one year. And I took women of color and I said, they're going to be, you're going to be on the stage and you, Mr. FDA, CDC, pharma sponsor, whoever, you will be in the audience. This is who the true expert is. And it totally changed the paradigm. People were leaving the, the, the hall, the great hall to come to our, my meeting. Um, and they saw the power of the patient voice because there were things, what makes up science is the patient, the doctor is treating the cancer, but the patient has the, the, the body that has the cancer. So you have to build that trust by having a relationship, by having me to be involved with, you know, why you're doing the research study, how to build a clinical trial. How to, how to understand what I call like my, th- my, my, my key thing is what is the truth about my lived experience and why I don't trust. So before you begin to tell me to build trust and, and build transparency, what is the truth about the past and the present? Can you lean into my truth? Let me speak my truth, learn from my truth. And can we be vulnerable, vulnerable about what has happened? What is still happening before we go into, you know, can I have your sample or specimen or can you please take this drug? And so a lot of my work is around bringing patients to the conference now we've done it for three years and never happened before 2019 we never had this large number of black patients coming to clinic coming to san antonio breast and then but also saying before i trust you you have to hear me you have to know my my lived experience you have to know where i'm from you have to know that anybody in a uniform for me whether you know from this that's, that's white or blue is one i don't trust you know even me living in one of the highest per capita incomes count county counties in america I experienced um, health inequities living in a high per capita access area where I've been asked questions and I want to be, be, be asked because of the color of my skin. And so it's really about building that open conversation, but demanding that our voices are heard, right? No one's going to say, come to my table. You have to say, I'm coming with my own table and my own chair. I'm going to sit down by myself and you can come sit with me and we're going to co-curate together. I think that's how you first start off, start off building truth and trust in science. 
That's so powerful. I completely agree. And maybe I should also say that part of this conversation is kind of the the aftermath um, or what is the dust, like the, the dust that's settling after SABCS from last year. I had the honor of attending a panel that you moderated. And um, <laughs> yeah, and we, myself and our um, program manager, Jayla, uh, we wrapped up SABCS as attendees and wrote five um, uh, pieces, op-ed pieces, or, or blog pieces, rather, around, you know, SABCS. And one of my takeaways, because this was my first year, last year was my first year attending. And, um, you know, as a, a, you know, as a researcher, scientism in, in one uh, lens of my work or whatnot, um, but also as an advocate, also as a person who um, has multiple identities that are historically and currently marginalized, all these different things, right? So in coming into this space, one of the things I realized was they spoke a lot about race, right? Like race and, and, and just some a little sprinkles of like justice, social justice, this and that, or not even those words, but health disparities, et cetera, right? Um, but then what was missing was the word, like the word and the attention around racism, like history and what's led us to here. And there was a lot of conversation around trust and science. And we sat there and we're like, but there's something, there's something that's missing, right? Like we can't just say there's all these different differences and outcomes and treatment and diagnoses and, and all these different things and participation within clinical trials that differentiate between, you know, racial groups, but we don't speak about what is the underlying variable there. You're right. I mean, call, we gotta call people out. Racism is a real, it's a real issue. It's a real issue. And it's why we still have redlining in communities that don't have access. It's why there are still food deserts. It's why um, even I, as, as early as last year, was asked when I went to the ER with the anaphylactic reaction, was I an, a, a drug, uh, you know, a druggie or alcoholic? It's why there are patients that I serve today who um, have asked for mammograms for six years and that total weight for six years till so their nipple is bleeding before they get access and they're now metastatic. So it's a real issue and it's uncomfortable, right? We don't want to talk about it. To your point, we discussed the things that are PC and, and it's hard because as a black woman who kind of pushed, pushed that conference to happen, I'm in a place where I can like leverage my position and my power and my influence. But then there are people on the other side who are not used to having us at the table who are like, well, this is great, but can you kind of figure out how to like control the room? And I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> um, and so it really takes people to really push, push the envelope. Um, to be honest, it, it, it's... Whereas I was, it was a great platform and I'm happy to have co-curated and still, there's still that need, there's still that sense of like people trying to manage how we speak our truth. And so, you know, one thing I did was I said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to coach my panelists. I want to have the black and brown patients on the stage or in the, in the chat box, but I'm not going to coach them on what to say. It's not about your comfort level. It's about the truth of what we're dealing with in, in, in mistrust. And so before you go into asking me to trust you, can we discuss the things that are bothering me? Can we discuss to my earlier point, being vulnerable about the things that are still inequitable in our system? And I think people are afraid to hear that. They, I think that we, you know, with the murder of George Floyd, we discussed a lot of what those things that were uncomfortable and people who are allies are fatigued. I had a white friend of mine say to me, I don't know how you do this. I've been in, I've been since the murder of George Floyd, I've been advocating, supporting you. I've been speaking, I've been sharing and posting, but I'm tired. I said, well, that's nice that you're tired. I said, I cannot be, I can't, I can't get, I can't afford to get tired being black. Mm -hmm. I cannot say I'm tired wearing the skin that I'm in and leave my house or tell my daughter when she goes out at nighttime, do not wear a hoodie. Um, you know, if the police stops you, don't do so. And so if you go to the doctor without me, 
here's what you have to ask for to be your own advocate. And so to your point, I think we have to push the needle, you know, because there's still that these things happen, but there's a lot, there's people are getting kind of the energy that, that we heard before. It's kind of like lowering towards this issue and it cannot be lowered because as a matter of fact, black women are dying at a 40% higher death rate than their white counterparts um, in communities, 20 communities around the country. that are still high areas of vulnerability um, for underserved populations. I want to uplift Mima's unabashed honesty when she says, I can't afford to get tired of being Black. And we see why this is so clearly because of the hugely disproportionate mortality rates for Black women with breast cancer, as opposed to their white counterparts. Tamitha then jumps in to speak further on how racism has historically been justified and its impact despite these disparities. It's important to remember that science hasn't only doesn't only have this um, incredible um, uh, sorted history of, of abuse in terms of the eugenics movement and Henrietta Lacks and the Tuskegee, but science was used at, um, to justify racist policies for four centuries. So science at its core is responsible for so much of essentially what we see today. And, and there hasn't been, in my opinion, a, a fair enough reckoning uh, within the medical establishment, the scientific, scientific establishment, a reckoning with that history. Um, uh, and um, yeah, I just, I, I feel like so much of, of what um, we see today is, is, um, so deeply rooted and any of the um, solutions that we try to bring to bear absolutely must account for those. There's lack of accountability. Like no one's penalized for not ensuring that we meet these metrics around getting black women in clinical trials. Since, since the murder of George Floyd happened, there's a tension towards trials and equity. There's no benchmark for if you don't do this by this time, you lose your funding, you lose your license, you lose your whatever. Doctors aren't, aren't penalized, nor are nurses, nor... So racism will continue until there's a me- measurable action taken to say, this is not done. We're going to try to... We're going to make incentivize or disincentivize for whatever it is, right? Um, so and, I think that if it's, if it's general, it won't happen. It has to be a smart goal formatted, right? So it's really people should be accountable to lose something. But also to your point, Tim, Tim the, it's ingrained. I had a, a woman that called me who was in her, in her 80s who said she, uh, a friend of mine, she said, I, you know, I, I didn't know I was racist. I didn't know that I was until the murder of George Floyd. There are things that people were, people like you, I was taught to believe about people like yourself and, and not associate with up to a certain point. And there are things that we do in medicine that we thought were right because we just thought, well, their skin's different, their hair is different, they're different people than us. Moving from the foundation of why this lack of trust exists and why it has persisted, KR then poses the question to all of the other panelists. With this history in mind, whose responsibility is it to build trust and hold the research community accountable? Here's what Maima and Tamitha had to say. I think, unfortunately, those who are in power, there is a system in place to keep them in power, right? That privilege they have, they like it. And I think that what we've been doing is disrupting that that system that those who have have more and protect it more. And they want to keep that in place. I'm sorry to say um, I, I've seen groups and, I, and it's, it's daunting. It's really broken my heart because I've seen groups that I thought were making change 
But I wonder if some of these changes performative change, right? To make themselves check that box. To see, I can't be left behind or be perceived as being non-engaging with this, you know, health equity movement. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I feel like there's tremendous power in advocacy. Um, when I began Tiger Lily, I was in treatment. Um, I was a single parent of a three-year-old. I worked a full-time job and I just looked at all the things that happened to me that would have caused me to die and not be here 16 years later. And I said, holy freaking God, what WTF, what can I do? So I began to use my voice. I never imagined I'd be here 16 years later running a national and growing global organization. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, how do we force multiply this? I believe in the power of one, that if one person has the passion and commitment and the drive to do something, everything's possible. So one of our programs trains women of color in communities that are underserved to be able to advocate for themselves, to know what to do about whether it's from breast cancer, you know, screening to policy to whatever. Um, we also train them to go on the Hill and lobby. We're having our lobby day next week. We bring them to scientists and we say, challenge scientists. They're only a person that got, got, had a degree and some experience, but your experience is a body that has had cancer and has cancer. How can we challenge that system? Mm -hmm. And so we also launch our inclusion pledge, which to your point, you know, who wants to do all this? But I, I do. <laughs> I think that, you know, I believe in the quote by Marianne Ray Edelman, it says, service is the rent we pay for a living. Mm -hmm. So if you're breathing, your privilege is to use that breath to make a difference and use that privilege as power. People are dying of cancer because you're not acting in one way. So I ask people, what gifts can you put in place? What can you use as your talent to change the, the landscape? So the power of one is important. You start off telling your story. Tamitha's story is so powerful, right? My friend Shantae's story dismissed for six years. Now she's metastatic. And there's many other like that, women who don't know their backgrounds, history of their families. And because we didn't discuss our history in the Black culture a lot, we're afraid of hearing about certain things. We're afraid of scientists and research. So how do we discuss what's happened um, and what our opinions and our truths are and overcome that to then build the nirvana of healthcare, of research science and, and the next level of solutions? And I think that we have to push scientists, researchers, policymakers, people in regulatory, like FDA, CDC, because they work for us, really. Yeah. And so how do we come in there with our, assume our power, and really work to overcome those barriers that even them who want to help still have a fear of us disrupting their systems. But unless we change what's been done, we're going to get what we always got, which is not working for Black and brown people. Whenever I'm being asked to trust someone, it's always best if we're on equal footing, right? If the relationship isn't only transactional, like they want something from me, so they're coming to me. So reckoning, I think, with the power dynamics of these relationships is critical. And we've touched on some of that. Coming to me on my worst day with a magic wand isn't fair. It means that I'm going to make decisions with fear at the center. So I think we have to help scientists, we have to ha help physicians better understand the most appropriate engagement methods for people in crisis, you know, especially if we're talking about recruitment into clinical trials. Are there better engagement points? Are there better messages, better messengers, you know, disseminating information to communities through organizations they do already trust, working with those organizations in community um, to build their trust so they feel okay advocating for um, mainstream uh, medical institutions. 
I think we also have to acknowledge um, the push and pull between scientists and individual oncologists. Often oncologists just want you to get started on treatment as soon as possible. They don't want you waiting around to see if you qualify for a trial and all of the testing that goes with determining eligibility. So they're, they're pushing you into oftentimes into treatment. And so sometimes patients may want to get into a trial, but they have to try to find one on their own. You may also have a doc that doesn't know anything about clinical trials or isn't able to fully explain them or because of bias assumes you aren't interested, which they are finding in the literature um, that individuals, um, physicians aren't letting women of color know about clinical trials or people of color know about clinical trials because they're assuming that they aren't interested because of all of the historical things we talked about earlier. So how can we make clinical trial information more accessible to communities? So um, participation is not dependent on an oncologist support. Um, and, and then I just want to mention, of course, um, which Mayma did touch on, you know, I saw an Instagram post yesterday from a person who I follow um, on, and she has cancer and she's in a study that requires her to go into a hospital every month so they can test her cognitive function. And she's historically been able to get these, um, these appointments lined up with her um, monthly check-ins with her oncologist, but lately they haven't been able to accommodate her. So it means another day off of work, another bus route. She's tired. She's suffering from side effects from treatment. She's waiting over an hour to be seen once she gets there. You know, cancer is a full-time job in and of itself. Being part of a clinical trial, um, getting treatment shouldn't add to the burden uh, to the extent that it often does. Um, but we have a, a long way to go um, in terms of building trust. And, um, and, and I think patients have certainly, um, those living day to day with this disease, we have a lot of things to say um, that, that people need to hear. As I think about what you two have um, said here, I also think about, you know, the push to um, put blame or uh, to put the responsibility of trust building on the individual and on the patient, um, much to a lot of kind of this tone of the responsibility of like getting cancer and your outcomes are individualized too as well. You know, maybe it's because something you didn't do or you didn't do enough of, or, you know, all these different things, right? And it's just this individualized focus of where, you know, the trust should start with the individual patient, just, you know, trust me, or the individuals, right? And it's so much while you're trying to navigate your diagnoses and your treatment and life at the new life as you know it, right? So um, I want to be clear that the, the task and the responsibility of trust building is not, is not on the individual patient, right? Like the, the end, the medical industry at large has to take accountability by having these dynamic conversations and having taken an intentional approach to inviting folks into those conversations to lead those conversations, not to listen, not to just say, okay, we've had this conversation come along with us, but to actually have some intentional relationships, starting with intentional conversations. Um, I believe both of you had have hit on this around storytelling because storytelling is qualitative data. Lived experiences is data, right? So like using that as part of the roots of this relationship building and listening. KR hits on a great point here and one that is often at the core of our work. 
Too often is there an emphasis on individual solutions to preventing breast cancer and individual solutions for navigating a breast cancer diagnosis. This is a limited approach and one that does not acknowledge that individuals exist within these systems, which also need to be held accountable. Tamitha speaks more about specific ways we can do this, starting with clinical trials. I think in terms of, of clinical trials, what I'll say is, you know, I'm on Trodelvi, um, a targeted chemotherapy that's used to treat advanced stage triple negative breast cancer. Black women, as you said, may are twice as likely as white women to be diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer in the U.S. But get this, 7%, 7% of Trodelvi trial participants were Black. So it's one thing for me to be asked to trust that this drug is going to work for me, that the side effects are going to show up um, and present in this way or that way. But it is a completely different thing to ask a Black woman to have the same trust about that drug. And so first off, just say it. Just be transparent about the fact that you have not done your due diligence on the women who are mostly affected by this disease um, as a triple negative, as showing up as triple negative, as you must absolutely have been. Um, the other thing is to be accountable to that lack of, of, um, of transparency. Um, encourage, require, there's a difference between encouraging and require. So why not require clinical trials to include diverse participants for new treatments to, to be approved? Don't fund clinical trials that don't require diversity among participants. Yep. You know, many clinical trials are partly or entirely conducted in, under, in other countries that have a totally different racial and ethnic makeup in, in the US. I was searching through the literature as I've been known to do um, to prepare for our, our conversation today. In clinical trials that led to FDA approval of 18 new cancer treatments in 2020, so this is not old data, 59 participants, 59% of participants lived outside of the US. So science must admit that there are significant gaps in knowledge, gaps in science, actually for people of color when it comes to breast cancer screening and treatment and side effects of those treatments. So this is what having that limited participation in trial really means. It's how people live. It's the lived experience that follows the lack of, of inclusion in clinical trials and, and testing. Um, it, it's sort of how things show up in real, in, in real life. Um, and it's, it's just, it's not okay. I will say that we have to just flip the table over, like flip it. Because generally it's been the paradigm that, you know, the FDA, the CDC, the HHS, all these governing bodies make up these different policies. And then they tell us what's going to happen. And they tell us everywhere from the time you're a little, your child, here's what the, the guidelines say to get this screening, that screening. Here's when you can be offered a clinical trial when you're metastatic, right? This is what it was told before. Here's when you have, to, so there are all these things and you can't get breast cancer screening before you're like, you know, before you're 45, things like that were, is what's been done historically. But why, what about we put the patient first before there's any kind of guideline, there is patients involved before there's any kind of trial we're involved in the, you know, the protocol development, the research question, protocol development, site selection, training, part, we're part of training people on the site how to be more patient and culturally competent. They have to understand our race our race, and what we've been through. And then maybe their innate racism or lack thereof, right? Um, I think this healing is a two-way street. 
Um, people have been blissfully ignorant for a long time. And it's okay to be uncomfortable because that, that's what takes growth, right? Okay. You don't grow when you're comfortable. You grow when you're pushed like a diamond. You're pressed and you grow. Um, and so I think putting patients first, and that's why for us, our angel advocacy program has been so important. Um, it should be more than more than five or 10 Black patient leaders in this country that are called upon to represent all the time. Um, I think that with that, um, holding people accountable to be to create change and saying that versus having this top-down approach to you guys are governing and we're down here, why don't we help you co-create solutions by leading with you? Okay. I think that's the new way that we're going to go. And we've been doing a lot of that, creating um, paid, trained patient advocates, and then really working with them to drill down in the communities where there's lack thereof and lack of, of support resources to have them lead within industry, within clinical trial development, within building trust as a community-based leader, right? And so I think that's where we're going with the change. And I love the words you both have used. It's about community. It's about, you know, heart-based passion. Um, we can't do this by ourselves, you know? And the system's only comprised of people. It's not a thing that's called a system. It's all of us that makes the system up. So how do we, how do we make it, how do we uh, dismantle what's not working and beautifully put together what we can put together to see better outcomes for people who are black and brown that need, deserve, and should have equity in healthcare and, and have trust in science. In addition to, as Mima says, co-creating solutions in these clinical spaces, we also need systems-level transparency and accountability from federal agencies. For example, we need the Food and Drug Administration to follow through and complete research on treatments that have gone through the accelerated approval process to ensure that the drug is safe and continues to improve quality of life for those who use it. We also need less industry influence on science, which affects the reliability of research findings and largely sways how these findings are marketed and disseminated. And when it comes to prevention, we need the Environmental Protection Agency to use the most reliable science so that they can implement strong public health and environmental protections that keep people from being exposed to chemicals that may increase the risk of breast cancer. Additionally, we need agencies like the National Cancer Institute to have better guidance, which includes being more transparent about the links between environmental exposures and breast cancer. This can be achieved by having a more diverse representation of environmental health scientists and specialists on advisory boards who will uplift multiple evidence streams so that we can ensure we are taking on the breast cancer crisis through multiple angles. These are all things we can call on our community of activists to do, and all things that we do call our community activists to do. Using our collective voices to demand these changes from federal agencies and to stand up against and call out policies, processes, and procedures that cause cancer, maintain the status quo of the breast cancer crisis, or impact the lives of people at risk of and living with breast cancer. In concluding this dynamic conversation, KR discusses how we as advocates can challenge systems and engage in relationships with the research community. Something that you said as you were closing was dismantle and beautifully build. I always say dismantle, disrupt, rebuild, right? Like have the gall and just the radical lens enough and courage to challenge, dismantle, disrupt, and rebuild. Like, you know, we, we can absolutely rebuild something that just works equitably for all of us, right? So 
Thank you for this conversation. Um, I think as a part of this conversation, you know, we know that there is a strong emphasis on asking people of the breast cancer community to trust science. This is the conversation we had today, but especially members of this community who have a justifiable, deeply rooted reason to distrust science, you know? So that's kind of kind of where um, we're, we're sitting here and that um, science in itself also serves and includes the population that science is for and needs to begin to focus on their efforts to actually take in accountability. So some of the things that you two have mentioned here as we close, I wanna just uplift that these kind of interventions or solutions that these gems that we're offering our audience here um, to begin to really just think about is uh, and, and, and work through is we can achieve this collectively through acknowledging history, uh, some of which was named here today. And if you're unfamiliar with history, um, or, you know, at this point where you want to dive deeper into it to get uh, gain a greater understanding, I encourage you to do that work. That labor does not belong on anyone, <laughs> um, specifically folks living with breast cancer, BIPOC folks, queer folks, et cetera, right? Folks that did you. <laughs> deep within those margins. If you want to learn more, I encourage you to do that work and research of knowing more. Um, it also includes transparency and accountability uh, points here. I, I'm going to just name it as mutual engagement and mutual effort and also providing equitable care and um, allowing our personal stories and lived experiences to be honored as data, right? And, and our truth. So this is, these are the initial steps it takes to begin to build a trusting relationship. And when we speak about trust and accountability, we're speaking about relationship building because we cannot begin to do this work of addressing and ending the breast cancer crisis until we begin to build trust, which means that we need to be in relationship with each other. This powerful conversation between the three panelists illuminates the patient-centered, anti-racist, and health justice lens prioritized by both organizations, Breast Cancer Action and the Tiger Lily Foundation. Our work on treatment screening and diagnosis and our work to achieve health justice goes beyond our attendance at conferences such as the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. Year-round, we keep an eye out and continue to be a watchdog for new scientific developments. We galvanize our community to demand changes that will improve scientific integrity, and we call out ways that agencies like the FDA can better center and work with people living with breast cancer. Join us if you too believe the scientific community can do more to build trust and to center the real world experiences of people living with breast cancer towards the goal of addressing and ending this public health crisis. Thank you for tuning in to the conversation on building trust in science, which was hosted again at Joanne Luland's 18th annual Billy Gardner Luland Memorial Benefit Fundraiser. And thank you for your partnership in our shared vision of a world without breast cancer. Visit our website, sign up for our email list, or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to stay more involved. Until next time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Breast Cancer Action Podcast. All of our podcasts are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. Give us a five-star review and be sure to subscribe. We want to hear from you. Tell us your stories, share your questions. Let us know who you want to hear from and who we should invite as a guest on the show. You can share your ideas by emailing info at bcaction.org or reaching out on Facebook or Twitter. While you're there, sign up for the emails to get the latest on all the rest of Breast Cancer Action's work. 
And if you value what you heard today, please support our work by donating on our website, bcaction.org, because together we can do something besides worry.